Father, we do just thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for the work that compassion does. Um, Lord, we thank you for the lives that are transformed. Um, and we thank you that it's, it's modeled and implemented through the local church. And we pray that you would continue to make those stories, um, to see those lives impacted. Lord, we know that you do the same for us. And so, Jesus, we're just praying um, that we might be able to accomplish this goal, uh, to see this need met. Lord, as we come into your text this morning, as we come into your word, would your Holy Spirit speak with clarity? May we have hearts and minds to hear. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. I want you to, I want you to uh, think of a moment an experience that you've had where you've approached something with a bit of overconfidence. You've come into something thinking like, I got this, right? And then you realize you don't got this. I, uh, when I was a youth pastor, I used to lead our students on trips down to Bull Shoals, Arkansas, um, which is a gigantic lake down there. We would do a houseboat trip with the kids and they loved it. It was a ton of fun and Expeditions Unlimited was the ministry that we would partner with. And one of the things they would do is they would take the students out on the, the boats and teach them to ski and to wakeboard. And, um, and students would learn to slalom ski and even sometimes barefoot ski. Um, and so this was towards the end of my youth ministry career. So I was getting older and feeling a bit like I needed to kind of prove myself, which is always, that's a bad starting place. Like, it's always a bad indicator. So I, I was learning to slalom ski, and I had done it before, but I'd always done it where you start on two skis, and then you just kind of shake one of them off and put your foot behind you. But I wanted to learn to start on, on a single ski. And so uh, the thing about Bull Shoals Lake is that it's, it's crystal clear. Like, it's, it's still, very, very still. And it's a great place to learn on. And so I got the hang of it. After a couple times, a couple pulls, I got up, and I'm zooming around. I'm, I'm doing okay right? So fast forward, like end of the summer, I get invited up to um, uh, Lake Geneva up in Wisconsin, um, which turns out is, is very different than Bolshoff's Lake, less still. And it's with a group of youth pastors, my peers, and we're, we do coaching and training and all this stuff. And so we're out there and this guy brings his ski boat and he's like, let's go out and go skiing. He's like, does anybody want to slalom ski? And I, of course, think I know how to slalom ski. I just did this, right? So I go out on the lake and I am just getting beaten and battered. Like I maybe would get out of the water for about a second and the first wave would hit me and then face plant. But then it's like your pride's at stake, right? Like, so I'm like, let's do it again. Let's do it again. I just keep doing this to the point where I'm like, I'm going to drown if I, if I don't do this. And then I did like the swim of shame back to the boat where all your, all your buddies are sitting there watching this unfold. And what makes matter worse is, is Pastor Bruce, if you know Pastor Bruce, he's there with me. He grew up in Florida, skied his whole life, goes out and he's zooming all around, making it look like it's a piece of cake. What changed for me? My environment changed, my circumstances, the conditions changed. But what I thought I could do well, what I was confident that I could do, I could not do. And it was, it was embarrassing. It was humiliating. And I think most of us can relate to the dangers that we experience, the dangers of feeling overconfident in our ability. I've done this when I've worked on cars, right? Like, I can fix this. And then you have your car apart, and you're like, this car is never going to run again, right? Like, 
We can imagine the perils, the experiences that we have of finding ourselves in over our heads and failing at the very thing that we were certain we would be successful at. Today, we're going to look, we're, we're really coming to the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to look at a passage that tells the story of Peter's denial of Jesus. And if you've been <clears throat> with us in our study of the Gospel of Mark, you know that Peter is a person who has uh, strong convictions, right? He, he's deeply committed. He, he comes across at times in, in the gospel as a bit brash, but he's all in, right? In general, he is wholly invested in, into the kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming. If you remember back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is the, or Peter is the one when Jesus asked his disciples the question, who, who do you say that I am? Peter's the one who stands up and responds and says, you're the Christ. Like, he gets it. Sort of. Immediately following this conversation, Jesus also goes on to tell his disciples that, that he's going to suffer many things and that he's going to be killed by the, and, and rejected by the chief priests and the scribes. And, and Peter, if you remember, he pulls Jesus aside, and it says in Mark 8 that he began to rebuke him, which I think that's, we can all acknowledge, that's probably a mistake, right? Like, if you find yourself trying to correct Jesus, you might be on, on hard or uh, thin ice. Jesus, in turns, if you remember this, he, he responds to Peter, and what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> like, that's, that's hard to hear. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting, you are setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. So the point is for Peter, and really I think all of the disciples, while they may be all in with regards to Jesus and his kingdom, they still seem to be out of a line on how Jesus is going to accomplish his victory, and really ultimately on the true nature of his kingdom. And I think it's perhaps this aspect of Peter that we oftentimes find relatable. I think this is why Peter, as we read through the Gospels, is, is sometimes one of the people, one of the characters that we connect to. Because do you ever find yourselves wavering between moments when you are looking at the call of Jesus as what it means to be his disciple and saying, I am all in. I'm all in. I'm there. I'm fully committed. And then moments when you're looking and saying, I don't get it. I don't get what you're asking of me, and I'm scared, and I'm confused. So today I want us to take a look at what I think Peter would call the worst moment of his life. This is in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 66. It says, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and see her, seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man was one of them, but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. So likely here, Peter's accent is giving him away. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear 
I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. It's a difficult passage to read. And there's a number of ways that that we could process this moment in Peter's life together. As we think about this this morning, I I want us to look at this in view of the overall context about what leads Peter into this this gut-wrenching moment of denial and how this informs our own apprenticeship to Jesus. And then ultimately, why this story, I think, matters so much. So it begins with this, Peter is coming from this place where he is disillusioned. Peter begins to the point where he is disillusioned. I remember in 2017 when we opened up the Mill Creek campus out here. This is in the fall, September, October was our very first public Sunday open. So the week prior to that, in order just to invite the community to get to know them, we hosted a big block party out here on the front lawn. Many of you were here, some of you will remember that. It was a ton of fun. We had food trucks and just a lot of our neighbors came and hung out with us and it was a great opportunity. And then across the lawn were all sorts of just games and blow-ups and all the kids were playing. There was a hayride. They were loving it. And the following week, so this is our first public Sunday, one of our launch team families is the group of people that, that came out here to serve and start this campus. One of their kids was kind of walking around the lobby a little slow, uh, somber. And so I went up and it's like, what's, what's going on? He was just kind of walking around going, the party's over, the party's <laughs> over. Because his expectation, the assumption was like, this is church, right? Like we got blow ups, there's food trucks, like this is amazing, right? Like that was his idea of what every week was going to look like. And he was confronted when he came to church that morning that none of that was there. When our, when our expectations and assumptions about the kingdom of God, when, those, when the way that we assume the kingdom of God operates, when that is disrupted by God's actual kingdom, the experience can leave us somewhere between confused to completely disillusioned. And I think this is where we find Peter. Despite Jesus' saying in very clear and very specific terms what's going to happen, right? If you remember back in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says to his disciples, he's talking to them, and he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he's going to, uh, to rise again. But even In light of all of that, Peter had his idea of what the Messiah was going to do. He believed Jesus to be the Christ. And he had an idea of what that meant and how he was ultimately going to do it. And yet the events surrounding the last few days in this passage here is causing him to question all of it. If you look at the trajectory that Peter takes over these last few hours in the Gospel of Mark, if you remember back when Jesus is having the Passover meal with his disciples. And he's there in the midst of all of it, and he takes something that they knew and were familiar with, and and he begins to describe it differently. In fact, he turns it on himself. And in the midst of that meal, he says something 
that was very um, difficult for them to hear. He said, there's one among you who's going to betray me. And he said, and all the rest of you are going to fall away. And if you remember, Peter's like, no way. That's not going to be me. In fact, in, in chapter 14, verse 29 and 30, he says, even though they all fall away, I will not. You remember that? Like, I could see these guys doing this. Like, I've seen some things I'm concerned about too, Jesus, but, but I'm not going to do that. In fact, he goes on to say, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. They all said, yeah, me too. Peter's pretty confident. He's pretty confident in his convictions, in his assumptions and expectations at this point. In fact, he, he attempts to prove it. Things kind of escalate from here. Jesus goes into the garden where we saw last week, he's just praying in anguish as he comes to face the burden that he is going to bear on the cross of, of God's wrath for all human sin. And as he has this time of prayer and this anguish, if you remember how that passage ended last week, he's with his disciples and he acknowledges and he says, look, the time is here. They're coming to arrest me. And so if you imagine sort of this angry mob showing up in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're there to take Jesus, to arrest him and take him to the, the chief priests, to lead him away. And Peter isn't going to have any of it. In chapter 14, verse 47, there's this little note here. He says, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The Gospel of John mentions that that is none other than Peter. So here in this moment, right, this has got to be it for Peter. He, he's got to be thinking maybe this is the moment. Maybe he is ready to die for Jesus, but Jesus stops him. Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom works. So I, I envision Peter in this moment when he is like, this is it. I'm ready to lay it all down for Jesus. And he stands up to defend him. And Jesus, and Luke's gospel says he not only stopped him, but he also healed the man's ear. I'm imagining Peter hearing all those things that Jesus had taught him about his kingdom. I'm imagining that the words that Jesus spoke when he said, in, in my kingdom, you you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. I'm remembering, imagining Peter's mind coming back on Jesus taught him that if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And this realization that Jesus wasn't speaking metaphorically. Jesus was saying that his, his kingdom is not going to advance by violence. That's not how things work and the kingdom that he is ushering in. So perhaps this is the moment when Peter's expectations of Jesus, his assumptions about what was ultimately going to happen begin to collapse around him. Whatever the case, we see the contrast between this Peter who is fully confident, who is fully bought in, who's going to do whatever it takes to defend Jesus. And the Peter who can't muster the strength to even acknowledge that he knows him. The Peter who's disillusioned, confused, and 
and I think very afraid. And I wanna, I wanna just pause here for a moment if we can. Because we need to ask ourselves the question, what king and what kingdom am I following? Or, or perhaps said a different way, where am I placing my expectations and my assumptions onto Jesus? Because I'll tell you, that's, that's easy to do. And I think we fall into that, can fall into that somewhat frequently, which is why the importance of constantly coming back to how Jesus describes his kingdom and the way that he taught us to live as his apprentices is so important. Because I think when, when our expectations, our assumptions, our version of how Jesus ought to run his kingdom is confronted with his actual authentic kingdom, that, in that place, for us, that's a place of vulnerability. It, 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 right there lies the opportunity for us to be confused and disillusioned. And in here, in this case, for Peter... He becomes disillusioned regarding Jesus and his kingdom. And what results is that Peter actually begins to follow at a distance. So first we see that Peter's disillusioned, but then he begins to follow Jesus at a distance. Back in the Gospel of Mark, what follows this in, in verse 48, so we see Peter wielding the sword here. And Jesus correcting him, in verse 48, it says, And Jesus said to them, so he's talking to those who've come to arrest him. Jesus said to them, Have you come out, uh, uh, out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled, referring to the disciples, so they scatter. Interesting little note here in 51. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's, some people believe that this is Mark, the author of the gospel in the story. That's not, we don't have verifiable evidence of this, but, but some people hold to that. Either way, he adds this little detail in here. Verse 53 and they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Look, we're no strangers to distancing ourselves from people, right? We've learned kind of in a social media world when somebody says something and does something stupid or hateful or whatever, like we've learned how to like whoosh, real quick from somebody, like how to, how to move away. Why, why, why do we do that? What is it about that that we've become so good at? Because proximity is dangerous, right? If I'm here by the person who's being accused of whatever, then I might be thought to hold the same view or feel the same way or whatever it is. And so we, we get the idea of, I gotta, I gotta create some space between this person and what's going on in their life and, and myself. 
Verse 54 simply says, Peter followed him at a distance. And Pastor Jeff talked about this on a, on a first Friday in men's ministry a couple weeks ago or last month. And to be honest, I don't think I ever really considered the implication of this detail, but this really is a tremendous shift for Peter. Remember Peter from the very moment that, that he dropped his fishing nets to follow Jesus. This has been the guy that's wanted to be in the middle of all of it. This, this, this has been the guy that's wanted to be right there next to Jesus as he taught and as the healings were happening he, he viewed himself and wanted to be proximate to Jesus, right next to him. But now, to, to be next to Jesus, that, that would come at great personal risk. Not to mention the fact that you're, you're not even sure at this point that you understand Jesus. That you understand the kingdom that, that he's doing and what, why he's doing it. So Peter distanced himself. He creates some space between him and himself and everything that is being thrown at Jesus. Now, to be fair, it appears the rest of the disciples have just scattered. They're just gone. Exactly like Jesus said they would. But, but Peter follows at a distance It's it's safer, right? Proximity is dangerous. I, I remember in youth ministry um, moments when we would have students who came into the program and got involved and sometimes were invited by a friend, maybe their family wasn't connected to the church and, and heard the gospel, responded in faith and really just started. This is part of what I loved about student ministry. Sometimes like transformation would just happen and, and so like they just got it and they were all about it. And, and you'd see these kids just, their faith become ignited and they wanted to just lay it all out there. And there was a couple times in the course of my career in student ministries where I would have a parent call me and it would usually start something to the effect of like, I'm really glad they're involved. It seems like it's doing good things. They have a great group of friends. I'm glad they're not out partying on the weekends. But I'm concerned that they're overdoing it, right? I'm concerned that, that like they're talking, they were talking about going off to school and studying to be this or that. They're, they're actually talking about going to Bible college now. And I'm not sure that they're going to make a great career doing that like can you kind of help me sort of like tone it down a bit for them like a bit too radical like sometimes following jesus closely comes at a cost and by sometimes i mean all all the time right here's the point i want us to see the trajectory that's unfolding in peter's life his his kingdom ideals are being disrupted he is scared and he's disillusioned, and so he gives himself some space. And so instead of being with Jesus, as he's done over the last three years, or year and a half of, of Jesus' ministry, he's like Jesus adjacent. He's in the vicinity of Jesus. But once again, this type of discipleship, this kind of apprenticeship from a distance, this is a a discipleship of comfort and convenience. Right? You can't apprentice from a distance. I can't be a plumber's apprentice, 
by watching the master plumber from his truck out in the driveway. I have to be with him. I have to be next to him. At this point, Peter is around Jesus, but he isn't with Jesus. And distance, so he's disillusioned. He's following at a distance, and distance precedes denial. Right? It's, it's impossible to deny knowing somebody that you're with all the time. And that's the third thing that we see here is denial. What follows what we just read in the text is a joke of justice. It's a charade. The, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they're violating their, their own laws, their own laws in the Mishnah about how to conduct a trial such as this. And if you read through it, you'll even see that there's all sorts of false witnesses that are, that are called to testify, and they, don't, they have different stories. It's just, it's embarrassing, and, and, and none of it goes well. And it comes to this kind of culminating point when the chief priests ask a question of Jesus. And this is verse 61. Caiaphas says this. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming in clouds of heaven. So Jesus directly refers to Daniel chapter 7. Or 7 or 9. He refers to the prophet Daniel. (laughs) This messianic prophecy and he says, it's me. This is the moment. Caiaphas responds. He says, you have heard the blasphemy. You've heard it from his own, word, his own mouth. So right alongside of Jesus' confession, the very confession that would lead to his crucifixion is Peter's denial. The faithfulness of Jesus in the face of those who are actively seeking to kill him alongside of the unfaithfulness of Peter when a girl in a courtyard asks him if he's with the Nazarene. Peter, in his third denial, he he becomes so threatened by the idea of being associated with Jesus. He goes out in verse 71, and he says, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. I heard another pastor say how horrible a thing to swear to God that you don't know God. And it kind of, in this moment, he doesn't, right? Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So what do we do with Peter's denial? What do we make of this text? As we've attempted to do here, I think we can look at our own lives and we can consider where we have adopted our own assumptions about the kingdom. Where we're vulnerable to finding ourselves disillusioned and and beginning to follow at a distance. We can talk about how we too convince ourselves that we are prepared to die for for Jesus and for his kingdom. And yet when things get uncomfortable and things get difficult, we fail to follow it. We could talk about the call that everyone who identifies themselves as a follower of Jesus has 
to implicate themselves by saying, yes, I, I have been with Jesus, verbally acknowledging that, making that known. And all of this is valid, and I think we should reflect on these things, but as we wrap up today, I want to I wanna land, I want to conclude with grace. Because as I study in this passage, one of the things that occurred to me is like, why do we know this story? How, how do we know all that happened here? If you remember, the Gospel of Mark is, is the earliest of the four Gospels. It's the first recorded history of eyewitnesses account of the life of Christ and of his teachings. Most scholars believe that the source witness, the eyewitness account, is Peter. That this is Peter relaying to Mark, this is, this is what Jesus said. This is what he taught. See, we know the story because Peter told it. Peter is so convinced on this side of the cross, in this season of his life, the power of God's grace and what it does in our lives that he says, when I want people to know this and I want them to understand what Jesus has done for them, tell them the worst thing I have ever done because grace covered that. In the gospel of, of John, we see that Jesus meets Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he restores him. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. And he does it three times. Peter tells the story because he wants us to understand and to know that in our worst moments, in the moments when we have distanced ourselves and and when we have become so disillusioned that we'll even pretend like we don't even know him. Peter says that Jesus is going to die to overcome that. And he's going to restore us and he's going to say, feed my sheep. Get about my work. And so as we conclude today, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I'm going to invite the worship team here and if you're new with us, uh, our um, expression of communion is not, you don't have to be a member at Chapel Street. It's not a Chapel Street thing. It's, it's, we believe this table belongs to Christ. And if you are in a relationship with him, if you're willing to allow his grace to confront sin and to be met in that, you're welcome to participate with us. In fact, if you did not receive the elements this morning when you came in, if you would just raise your hand and our ushers will make sure that you have them. Um, and because for thousands of years, at the center of every worship service in the church was a table with the cup and with bread. Long before there was a pulpit, before any of that, the experience of the church together was to come around the body and the blood of Christ. So that when each of us in, in our best moments and in our worst can come to his table and know that there's grace for us. Because that's the thing that we all share in common. Our need for it and his willingness to give it. And so I just encourage you this morning, reflect on God's overwhelming grace. Because we too can tell the story we too can tell the story of, of our denial, 
our brokenness, our own shame. We can bring it out into the light and you say, well, why can, why can I do this? Because of Jesus, because of his body, because of his blood. Covered it, transformed me. In just a moment, I'll return and I'll, I'll lead us in the taking of the elements. But take a few moments as the worship teams leads us just to, once again, come under the grace that transforms. When Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, as they celebrated Passover together, he took bread. He said, this bread is my body given for you. As you take this bread, be reminded of his promise and of what he would accomplish, how his victory would be won. This is the body of Christ given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And he took the cup. The cup of the promise, a, a promise that they knew and understood, and yet this time he said, this cup is my blood. It's shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's the promise of a new covenant. This is the blood of Christ, shed for you, take and drink in remembrance of him.